This morning, I, I have a question for you. Hypothetically, if you were a retired African bishop and you had to give advice to a young missionary going out on the field, what advice would you give him? <laughs> Pray, yeah. <laughs> the advice that my friend Robert received, you can see in the slide, is um, if the slide's coming. There it is. This is the advice that he received. And if you don't get anything else out of what I say today, take this piece of advice and live it out. It says, feast on the word and live it out in the village. And that village right there is a picture there. And on the next slide, you'll see Robert in the same village. He works and lives in the village of Lopit. He's been there for about the last eight years. And the village is very picturesque. It's nestled in the mountains. It has these beautiful um, tukuls that are created with these palm leaf roofs and the architecture is just amazing. In fact, it has little, little narrow alleyways made out of little rock walls all the way through the village and you go through it and you think, okay, I can live out Jesus in this village. It's very peaceful. In fact, it's very organic. The people in the, in the village, they do everything by hand. The, in the next slide, you can see them there carrying the the lady on the left is grinding their sorghum, which they drink or they eat for their, their meals. And then my friend Thomas in the middle is planting his peanuts and will harvest his peanuts. They're both farmers and livestock keepers in that village. And then on the far right is one of the girls carrying water. So everything is by hand and it's a lot of hard work, but still it's okay. But if you remove it one layer, it gets a little tougher. Because as you walk through the village, you have to bypass the human excrement that's sitting on the side of the road. And you can't travel from one village to the next village because they're in a feud and they might kill you on the road if you travel from one to the next village. There's a lot of revenge killing that's been going on for the last hundred years. There's heat. There's dangerous snakes. There's scorpions. There's mosquitoes that carry malaria. Even the cows, they deal with disease. In the next picture, you can see knee-deep in just mud and filth. And so while the village sounds quaint on the outside, there is a, the evil that goes on it. And it's not just on the outside with disease and some of those factors, but in people's hearts, they have a revenge and evil that controls them. The ladies, if they're angry or feuding with another lady, they'll actually scream across to the village from hill to hill and have an argument for the whole community to see. It's really a hard place. And so those, those wise words of the bishop, feed on the word and live it out in the village, becomes much more challenging when we deal with the suffering that exists in that place. And so this morning, I wanted to talk a little bit about suffering and take a, a biblical look at what suffering is. It's funny that they said, you can preach on the series that we're going through, which is about the rich young ruler. And I thought, hmm, that's not my context. <laughs> so let's try something else. So this morning, we're, gonna, we're going to talk a bit about suffering. But as I said, we've been there for the last five years. And as missionaries there, you get to see suffering like you never have before. All the insulation that we wrap ourselves in in Western culture is stripped off, and you're left with the raw suffering and what to do with that. 
And so I've been wrestling with this question a, a lot. But as a missionary, you have a thousand deaths to die. I'm talking about physical deaths. In the last two terms, we've seen two of our close colleagues in South Sudan pass away. One was murdered a half a mile from our home. He was a close work colleague, and I was the one that drove his body back from the hospital to his house for burial. So the loss was really close and ripping. The second one served with, with Robert in the same village. And then he had taken his family there. He had left a good job in Tarit. He had moved there with his family because he really wanted Jesus to be known in the village. And right after we left South Sudan, I got a phone call that he had passed away from malaria. 33 years old, two young kids, and four others that he took care of as his own. So the physical loss in South Sudan is real. The most common social event we go to is a funeral. We probably, they do it very, very well. They're very communal. They last for a long time, and you celebrate and you mourn the loss together as a community. But I haven't been to a wedding, and yet I've been to over 50 funerals. So the physical loss is real, but there's other losses that we experience. You lay in bed at night deciding if the, malaria, the mosquito in your ear is carrying malaria and if it's worth waking up and trying to chase it to its death so that you can get a good night's sleep. So you give up the physical comforts by living there. It's a really hot place to be. You get to experience other kinds of deaths, some good ones. You go in and you're totally incompetent at everything. And so the death of your pride goes, and what a blessing that is. And, so, and suffering comes in all shapes and all different sizes. And I wanted to share one story that will kind of give you the context of it. And it's about my favorite pair of shoes. You see, I have very finicky feet, and going life in South Sudan requires that you have functional quality shoes. And I had found that pair of shoes. And on Saturday night, my friend Joseph, who I also work with, he called me and said, my uncle's passed away, and I really need a ride to take his body to the village. It's a custom in South Sudan that they take the body back to the place that the people have been from, and they bury them in their home village. It's a big ceremony, and um, my heart dropped immediately because I wanted to be a, a good missionary. I wanted to support him in this. I wanted to be communal in this, but I knew where he lived, and I hated the road that he lived on. Unfortunately, there was no other missionaries in town, so I was the chosen one. <laughs> so I reluctantly agreed, but in my heart, I was fighting it the whole time. So I gave every excuse possible to get out of it, but still, the following day, after I went to church, I was the preacher for the day, so I couldn't skip that one. Joseph was also there. We got in the car with our pastor. We went to the site that the body was being held, and I was so thankful. Another car had picked up the body and taken it to the village. I was so thankful, in fact, that I was in a, a, a jolly mood when they asked me, would you mind taking all this group of mourners out to, to do the burial, and then we could return right after? And so I reluctantly agreed, and I started out. Now, the road out to Labalua, I drive a big land cruiser, you'll see it in a minute. A road out to Labalua, you go straight for a little while. Sorry, 
the road out to Lodo. Not that you know the difference, but I do. <laughs> the road out to Lodo, you go straight for a little bit. Straight means that you turn here, you turn there, you go through this small ditch and you get up and you go. But then you drop into the potholes that are the size of your car. And the pothole that size of your car is covered in this nice placid water, muddy water, but you have no idea what's lurking beneath the water. How much mud is there, how much mud is not there, and where you're gonna get stuck. So, my car is very big. There was probably 12 of us loaded in the car. We are on our way. 45 minutes into the road, I've gone down and up and down and up, probably 20, 25 times by then. I get to the part of the road, I make the tragic mistake of going left instead of right, and my car ends up like that. So, not to worry, there's a winch on the car. I climb out, we drive, I climb out onto my running board there, climb over to get to the winch, start pulling out the winch, the winch keeps coming, the cable keeps coming, the cable keeps coming, until the cable comes completely off. <laughs> to make matters worse, I look down, and my left tire is flat on the front. <laughs> At that point, I really started asking the question, why did I agree to this? Half of the car decided, hmm, he's not going to make it, and turned around and left and walked back to Tarit. The pastor and Joseph started working on the winch. They, Jimmy rigged it back together so that it would pull us out. I inflated the tire. It happened two hours later that we were back on the road going. We continued on a while. We got stuck one more time. We kept going and going and going. And finally, we reached the village. I told him, you have 15 minutes. That's all. We're back in the car. The car's leaving in 15 minutes, and we're returning because I don't want to sleep in the dark. So we head back. They are miraculously agreed to the 15-minute time. They said their condolences. We were there. We supported the community and what they needed. We got back in the car and headed back on our way. As we were heading back on the road, we made it through each of the treacherous spots. One of the cars had passed us as we were going and we were talking to some of the villagers in one of the nearby villages. And I was so thankful, I said, well, if he can make it, I surely can make it. So we continued back on the road and there's a fork in the road right as you near the end of the journey. One of them is a, a farther journey, but a safer one, and one of them is a shortcut that gets you through town. Standing on the fork in the road is the driver of the other vehicle. He's waving at me and saying, please help, I'm stuck over there. So if you're stuck in South Sudan and someone's around, you're obligated to help because you might be the next one stuck. So I go drive over to where he is. He said, if you just go that way, I didn't use that way, you'll be fine. and You won't get stuck. So I just go that way and I end up completely stuck. <laughs> completely up to the running boards. There is no way out. I try the winch, no winch. I try digging out. There's no way to dig out. The mud just keeps filling in. At that point, I'm up to my knees in mud. My very nice favorite shoes are totally soaked through. So I take the shoes off. I wash them up. I put them aside, and I continue. We try winching him to me so that we could pull him closer. That's disastrous. We try winching to a tree. It doesn't work. We can't go anywhere. So we're just stuck. There's one more car on the way. And some guys from that car come and they try to push me out, but again, we're stuck. 
And finally, we hook up a cable, and he pulls me out. This other car that came pulls me out of the mud. We pull the other car out of the mud, and we're ready to go. So I go to retrieve my shoes, and someone's stolen my shoes. <laughs> so it's pitch black outside. I have no shoes. I have a half a car full of people that need a return. And what is going through my mind? Why on earth am I in this situation, God? <laughs> what was the point of going there for 15 minutes to trash my car, to get my favorite shoes stolen, and to be in this situation? And isn't that where suffering leads us, no matter what type of suffering it is? To the place of why? Why is this happening to me? There's too much pain. There's too much, God, I can't handle it anymore. Why did you give me this? And I think that's our Western view of how we process suffering. We go to that why question and we wallow in that why question thinking, if, there's just, if there was just an answer to the why, if there was purpose to this, I knew that I could pass through this suffering. But if there's no purpose in this, why am I here? And in our Western mentality, we keep moving and we, we often end up the, at the next statement, I need this. And we can fill in I need this with any number of things. I need a vacation. I need a spa treatment. I need a good cup of coffee. I need just a break from this. I can't handle it anymore. And those I need statements are not wrong but if they just stay at that I need statement as our only thing, they become wrong because then we start advising people next to us, you need this. You just need to get away from that. That's our Western mentality of the way we look at it. The African mentality is different. Interestingly, they don't struggle with the why. They have so much suffering that, and they communally go through that suffering that they accept it. They don't question the why. But at the root of their worldview, there's other problems. They are animists. The, the people groups that we work with are animists, meaning that they believe a lot in spirits, especially spirits of the ancestors that can control the events of today. And so they're looking at how do we appease the situation? This suffering is caused by something that I did or something that my ancestors did and I'm attached to it and I can't get away from it. And so the place that they, the dangerous place that they end is if I just revenge this, everything will be better. And so they look at suffering as, well, if I'm suffering, I need to revenge my suffering on somebody else. Yet both both views, worldviews of suffering, leave us completely empty to what suffering actually is from a biblical sense. So I wanted to just take some time and look at what does the Bible say about suffering. As this experience in South Sudan has stripped away a lot of that and we've seen suffering face to face, I've really started to meditate on what does it mean to be poor in spirit? What does it mean to suffer? And if we look at the Bible, the Bible is filled with opportunities for us to learn about what suffering is. And so we have texts, we have books, we have the book of Job, we have the book of First Peter that 
extensively talk about suffering and give us extensive measures on that. Today, I wanted to focus on one passage in the book of, of Romans. I think it's here on the board in Romans chapter 5, verses 2 through 5. I'm starting in the middle of 2. It says, we rejoice in the hope of the glory of God. More than that, we rejoice in our suffering, knowing that suffering produces endurance, and endurance produces character, and character produces hope. And hope does not put us to shame, because God's love has been poured into our hearts through the Holy Spirit, who has been given to us. And so as we read this verse, we say, Amen. We rejoice in the hope of the glory of God. Amen. And then we read the second part. More than that, we rejoice in our suffering. And we think, theoretically, that should work. <laughs> theoretically, we should be able to, to rejoice in our suffering and understand that our suffering is there. But when it's in the middle of the heat and you've been barraged by suffering after suffering, and it doesn't have to be in South Sudan, it happens here, it happens to all of us, this theory has to be turned into practice, but that's a challenging thing to do. But it's not this one verse that talks about rejoicing and suffering, so there's a truth in it that we need to understand. I think as we look at the survey of biblical thoughts on suffering, we see that immediately it gets divided into two. We have self-induced suffering, and self-induced suffering we're warned about. We think of it as sexual sin, as addictions, as things that we choose, and the natural consequences of those choices produces suffering in our life. And, and the warning that we see throughout Scripture, not so much in Romans, but throughout the rest of Scripture, is avoid these things. Live a life that is holy and avoid these things. So the first thing we learn about suffering is in self-induced suffering, avoid it. But I think there's another category that we experience that's much more mysterious. And I would call that category God-given suffering or according to God's will, as it says in 1 Peter. Suffering that God gives us that we didn't ask for and that we didn't induce on ourselves. Suffering like disasters that come. Suffering about being born in a different country where they suffer. <laughs> suffering of floods and famines. Suffering of injuries. Suffering of cancer. These sufferings that we didn't bring upon ourselves, but we find ourselves in. And I think they're characterized by the mystery that surrounds them. They're indiscriminate. The rich, the old, the young, the poor, they all suffer. We don't have a choice on whether we get to suffer or we don't get to suffer. It's just suffering that's there. And in that one, I think our lesson from the Bible is expect it and accept it. So the first point that I would say on the slide there is avoid and accept. And I thought, man, if that was my only, only lesson for today, that sounds really weak. <laughs> if all we're supposed to do in life is avoid and accept, then we're pretty hopeless. 
But I think we have to start there because if we don't accept that suffering is part of our lot in life, we'll really struggle through it. So I think one of the things that we have learned from living in the context that we've been in and for the last years is that suffering is going to happen. So what is our response to the suffering that's around us? So the second thing that I have up there is that we have a choice. Especially in this God-given suffering that we have, there's a clear choice. And one of the choices is that we can choose for it to be senseless. And senseless suffering, when we start wallowing in the whys of senseless suffering, we struggle there. Self-pity comes, bitterness comes, brokenness comes, and eventually hopelessness comes because there feels like there's no purpose. It's just pain and more pain and more pain. But the Bible doesn't talk about suffering in that. When he says rejoice in suffering, there must be something more that the Bible talks about, the Bible gives us about what suffering has. And so I would say that there is a, the other side to senseless suffering is transformational suffering. Suffering that builds in us transformation, that matures us in what it is. And when we look at the characters of it in the verse in, in Romans chapter 5, we see that suffering comes, and then out of suffering we have endurance, and then out of endurance we have character, and out of character we get to hope. And in my mind, on one side, this senseless side, we end in hopelessness, and on this side, when we allow God to use our suffering for transformation, we end in hope. I wouldn't naturally put suffering and hope together. They don't naturally go together in my mind. But in the way that God writes his word, it goes naturally from suffering to endurance, from endurance to character, from character to hope. And that hope is filled with the love of God and powered by the Holy Spirit. In 1 Peter chapter, chapter 4, he says, As Christ suffered, so arm yourself with the same way of thinking. And so I would see in this progression that Romans lays out for us that we go from suffering to, to hope in the middle of that is this endurance and character building. And I think we have to work on our endurance and our character building if we're going to suffer well. And the way that we can do that is what they say in, in, in 1 Peter where it says, arm yourself with the same way of thinking. We have to have premeditated hope. We have to have hope in the midst of the suffering and we have to have postmeditated if we go into suffering without any understanding of well, the way that God wants us to suffer, we will definitely end up in the wise. But if we go through suffering with a premeditation of God has purpose in this for me, I need to accept the suffering that is in my life and start working from that point of view, it develops inside of us a character that we can live in the midst of that suffering. I can tell you, most of us swing back and forth 
between transformational suffering and senseless suffering. Sometimes we just wallow in the whys, and sometimes we move to that place where we allow God to use that suffering in our life in a way that's really pure and powerful. What I think is so interesting about this hope is that this hope doesn't stop there. In every passage, this hope has to lead us to the right perspective. And the third point is having the right perspective and this perspective of hope. I was trying this statement on with my family and you guys, I'll give it to you and you can wrestle with it the week and see if you like it. So as I was working through this, I found like, hope does not stick in our life until we've worn it through suffering. We can think about hope and we can think about things eternal, but hope will not stick in our life until we wear it through the suffering. But hope is not founded in us or in what we can do. Hope is found in the internal. And I love that every passage that we look at about suffering doesn't end with just hope, but then it goes and gives us a commentary on Christ. And so our hope has to be rooted in who Jesus is. And suffering has to be, have the perspective of Jesus that he not only suffered together with us, but he conquered suffering in order that he may take us eternally to be with him. And when our hope is rooted in Jesus, as the Bible instructs us, then this suffering starts to have purpose and mature us and build character inside of us. We see this in many places, but maybe the place that's most clearly stated and the place that I wanted to, to end with today is in the book of Job. For, let me give you some context. The book of Job is written about a, a very wealthy and prominent man who's righteous before God, and he suffers deeply, losing his family and his inheritance, losing his place in the community, and his friends come to try to console him and say that your suffering is because of your sin, and he says, no, I am righteous before God, and they wrestle with this for chapters and chapters and chapters until he is totally exhausted by it, and finally God comes in. And God talks to him and shares with him and asks him hard questions. And at the very end of it, we have this very small verse that gives us great insight. He said, I had heard you by the hearing of the ear, but now my eyes see you. See, suffering produces inside of us this character that we no longer have to just hear about God, but we experience him at the very deep and powerful levels at our life. And for Job, after going through all this suffering, he had heard of the greatness of God. He had lived the greatness of God, but he had never lived through suffering, and so he didn't have the hope that comes through suffering and at the end of his time, he said, I heard you by the hearing of my ear, meaning I had known who you were by people telling me about you, but now I see you for who you are. And his response to that is, therefore, I despise myself and repent in dust and ashes. 
And so as we've walked through this suffering of South Sudan, we've experienced what this is like. To walk in deep suffering, to, to know it at a level that we had never known it before. And to ask the question, what is the purpose of this? And this is the purpose of it, that we move from hearing about God to taking the hope that he gives us, the hope of the resurrection, and walking through suffering with that hope. And in that, we mature to know Christ in a way that we would never know him before. Maybe I can pray for us today. Jesus, I just love you and thank you. I thank you for the gift of suffering that you give us in our lives. I pray that we would use that gift to be totally transformational. That we wouldn't wallow in the whys, but we would move to the who of who Jesus is. That Jesus is with us. That he commands us to go to the ends of the earth, but he gives us all authority that's in him. And he says, I am with you always. Thank you for that promise. I pray for each one that is going through pain, going through suffering in their lives. That your word would be an encouragement. That you have a process for us in this. And that you will lead us to a place of hope. Father, help us because we need the strength of the Holy Spirit and the love of Christ to make it there. We ask these things in your name. Amen.